Dotnet Rocks episode 673 with guests Magnus Martinson, Bjorn Eckengren, Gil Cleavin, and Kevin Dox. Recorded live Wednesday, June 8th, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Hey, it's Carl and Richard at Rocks. We're here at NDC, the Norwegian Developers Conference 2011 at the Oslo Spectrum in Oslo, Norway. Hey, man. And it's raining. Yeah, it is. I, ask me how I know. Uh, you were outside. I get you got a little wet. Well, we have our, our friends Magnus Martinson and Bjorn Eckengren. Uh, Magnus, of course, we know from uh, Ordev. Yeah. I, well, I don't think you're involved anymore, are you? No, no, no. But I've been there many times. Yes, right? yes. And yes. we're going back this year. Will you be at the event? Yeah, probably, yeah. Okay. Yes, I'll be there. So. Well, that's where we met you. Anyway. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. And you guys are, uh, are doing a talk here on? We did a talk on, on, on Windows Azure and Java. Windows, Azure, and Java, two great tastes that taste great together. Uh, well, yeah, kind of. It is a bit of a... We had a, we had a slide uh, on our deck saying Windows, Azure, plus Java, and then at the bottom there in parentheses, it's the little w- WTF right down there. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we've I've seen... Uh, we did a show a while ago on Azure and PHP, and so actually when you poke around the Azure site for a while, you find out it supports all kinds of platforms. So what is it you need to do to actually run Java on Azure? Well, um, right now there is a, a um, plugin for Eclipse, which is the Java IDE mm-hmm. um, by Microsoft. Uh, so you can generate Azure projects directly from there. Um, and you need to do a little bit fiddling there to, to get it into Azure because it's still kind of new. And Microsoft just started developing this year. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not as complete as the PHP companion, probably because the Java world is a lot more complex than PHP. So, and when you get Eclipse, you get the, the JRE, and it, it, is that going to install on the server okay? Are there any issues with uh, runtimes running on the server? No, that, the that works perfectly. I mean, yeah. it, Azure is, is Windows Server yeah. plus, plus some stuff, so, so it works. No UI awesome. bonking or anything? No, no, standard operating procedure is basically zip the thing together and upload it to your machine in, in one of several ways. You could either deploy it with your deployment or you can download it from like blob storage as a zip file and unzip it. Works fine. So I got to think the obvious case for this is I have an existing Java application and I'm thinking about moving it to the cloud and, and EC2 is too much work. Like, are you actually working, running in a worker role here when you when you run an Azure? Yes, yes, we are. Uh, that's uh, we had that question actually at lunch here. Uh, if you're like a Java shop, really, you got your Java apps and your Java stuff, uh, would you really be choosing Windows Azure? Answer is probably no. Uh, you probably wouldn't, but you can. Uh, and and so this, I think, uh, scenarios mostly caters to other scenarios, like when you have big enterprise applications uh, with much lots of parts, and mm. one of those parts is bound to be a Java part. And right. can I run it on Azure? Sure, you can. So it's not your entire application, maybe, but it's a, p- a critical piece that runs in Java, and we want that to be in the cloud too. Right. It's not gonna. It's important that that doesn't keep you back. Uh, Microsoft has promised uh, first first citizen uh, first citizen first class citizen citizenship, I should say, for Java uh, as well as, I mean, in, in parallel with, uh, with uh, C-sharp, I guess, tooling support right. and, and the works. 
it's important for Microsoft to have this this story down as well because if you couldn't run Java things on on Azure, they basically annihilate like an alienate, I should say, a big bunch of customers. So tell us the story of how you got into Azure and Java. The story. Tell us the story. Oh. What was? Did you didn't just wake up one day and say, "Hey, no, that's a niche for me." I mean, there must have been a <laughs> development project or something. There was. We have we have two things actually. And the, one was that the, the guys at uh, a company that we're partnering with uh, or doing this together with, we actually have uh, uh, Microsoft uh, Business Innovation Funding for this. Uh, is to take their product, which is a graph database server, mm-hmm. uh, written in Java and hosted on Azure. So I wrote the very first lines of codes uh, to, to do that, and. Uh, Basically, that those lines of code exist today. We polished them off a bit, mm. but but it's it's uh, about taking that Java server, hosting it on a, a Windows Azure worker role, exposing it, opening it up a port, and just communicating with it. Uh, and so that was the f- the, the start uh, startup for that. And then after that, we have actually a, a real project we're we're using. We're building it now. It's a, it's a secret thing, yeah. but but it's it's a. Uh, it's a graph uh, problem. We have geospatial stuff and we have uh, social networking stuff uh, involved in this project. And okay. so a graph database is just a natural fit for that type of problem. So space. when you were when you're trying to figure all this stuff out, you know, Greenfield, what what were the obstacles that you had to overcome? <laughs> well, I had to overcome the fact that I'm not really a Java developer, uh, yeah. and, and I'm not today either, but I had to go and ask the Java guys uh, several, several, several times for things which would be extremely trivial uh, for a Java developer. And they were patient with me because okay. they were sort of had a stake in it as well. And together, we actually did some remote debugging sessions. We had things like byte order markers. So that was, a, that was an interesting one. Yeah, <sighs> you send, send a request and the body, uh, well, does the body contain a byte order marker or not? And if we look oh. at, if you go down into the spec and look, uh, they, they obviously, they, they hadn't included a byte order marker in their server product. So, uh, when I sent one, uh, I just accidentally sent one. I didn't even know that I did. Uh, it just came out as gook on their side. They couldn't, uh, <laughs> what's, what's this stuff in the front here? What's, yeah. what the hell is that? Uh, and, uh, and so we had a remote debugging session. They were sitting on their servers and I was making a request and they just looked at it and said, this looks strange. When we go down into the spec, it actually says in the spec for, for a stream that, that uh, a UTF-8 stream spec says that it's optional. So you can actually include it. And now they actually have like a switch thingy, like an if case okay. uh, in, in their server. So other than the Java stuff, once you had that going, was, was there anything in Azure that was a particular challenge? Yeah, uh, a couple of things. Uh, like you, you need to be. Uh, it's it's kind of. You need to work a bit a lot with uh, like this folder or that folder. Like uh, I, I usually uh, like uh, create a path or something dynamically, and I miss by one folder, and then mm. nothing works. And then you have to get the logging out. That's been a, a challenge as well. Yeah. To get the logging from the Java application to appear. Anywhere where you can get to it. Right, it's and, not like a file system. You have to use right. the storage API. Yeah, and that's that's fine. It works uh, perfectly actually with uh, uh, Windows Azure Diagnostics uh, to to get uh, just add a a data source, uh, which is in this case would be a, a folder, the folder to where uh, the Java server is logging. Mm-hmm. Add that as the output, and that's and works fine. So what about runtimes? I mean, does it matter what's installed on the in the worker role? Is it you? Do you need a particular runtime? Any of them work? I've just used one, and it works for me. So I, I'm. So I, you I, didn't I, spend a lot of time figuring out what runtime to run. You just grabbed the latest one. I just grabbed the one that the Java guys pointed me to. And right. Like, use this. Does it work? Yeah, it works. Good. And it's it's just the same as if you were setting up Java running on any other Windows server. 
Right, and that's actually there. It is. Uh, there's a, actually a, a nice bit of background story to that, Bjorn, uh, with the uh, the involvement of the Java tooling support stuff. Uh, that story with. Uh, sorry, what what we thinking on here? Uh, the uh, part where you have the. The, the evolution of the tooling. First, they started off in one direction, and then they right. chose a different one. Yeah, yeah, right, right. So, so they started with with a quite ambitious project of making a plugin for Eclipse, uh, where you could. And when you we, say they, who's they? Sorry, um, Microsoft. Um, okay. I think they tried to to um, create something like the PHP Companion, which is a very complete environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, this is what's the, uh, what they demoed. Uh, a guy named VJ demoed PDC ten. Which looked really awesome, but um, then it proved that it was quite hard to complete that uh, plugin to quality because there are so many. Well, uh, to begin with, there are th- at least three JVMs, uh, Java virtual yeah. machines, and then, of course, there are like a gazillion of application servers and libraries and frameworks, and have a plugin that supports all of them would be really hard to to develop and to, to maintain. So they took a step back and said, "Okay, let's let's do something else." We have targeted too much and only the web part and, and Java programs can run in, in on non-web as well. So right. so they, they start over uh, with a new approach that anything Java should should be running. So that's where they are now. And then I think they are in the third iteration of this plugin. And I'm wondering about whether you do anything other than build web pages that would run against JavaScript or run against Java uh, directly. Like what kind of apps are you building that it makes sense to put them in Azure? Well, we have a storage backend now. I mean, right. so so the storage, uh, the Neo4j Graph database server runs on a Windows Azure Worker role, mm-hmm. and then we attach to that uh, to get stateless behavior. Of course, we can't have the the, the Java server write their uh, the database files to state to local disk. Right. We attach a, a VHD uh, from Blob Storage, a page Blob, and then we use that for storage. Oh, okay. So so we have it's a, it's a complete enterprise grade server running. It's an application server. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. But it's but for storing graphs. For storing graphs, exactly. Right. Yeah. So and it, interesting that it's a combination of a worker role and blob storage. Yeah, it is. I, th- I think that's a. I think it's pr- pretty much standard operating procedure. That's the way to do it if you want to do it right. like stateless and scale out and all of that. So yeah, how would you scale that? Can you mo- move to multiple blob stores and uh, and as many worker roles as you can lay your hands on? Sure, you could do that. Uh, we're we're uh, that's the bit that we're focusing on right now, actually, for to create to enable high availability for this server. You have to have, of course, multiple servers running on multiple instances, and as you say, you would then have to mount one blob mm. file to each one of them. And and then, unfortunately, the uh, Neo4j product supports that. They have a thing called a zookeeper, and then they have a cluster, and then they support that scale out. And that's really no different if you're doing Java or C Sharp or anything. I mean, yeah. do you have the same? Yeah, that's the same. It would be exactly the same. How do you know which uh, blob you need to reference? Uh, well, that, <clears throat> pending, can I say that? Uh, okay. <laughs> we're, we're, as I said before, we're working on that right yeah, now. Yeah, but it, this is you're the interesting right. challenge is you're, you're right. going to make, you're going to hook connect to some worker role. You don't really know yes. which one. Make yep. a request for a given yes. graph and it's got to figure out where it is. Yeah. And then they have to sync to each other. I've, mm-hmm. I've actually raised this issue. I'm, I'm glad that you point to it directly because I have, have been the one on our team saying that we need to address this. And the other guys say, I don't know if they haven't gotten it yet. They're like they don't really understand the problem, but you're right. Uh, fortunately, if you do look into it, the names of the servers are actually enumerated. Okay. Uh, your instances. You can go to the instance name of your worker role, and it's got a number in it. So they're just zero, one, two, three, four. So you could actually reuse that.
This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls, to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework, to free agile management tools and content management systems, all of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com slash free stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash free stuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. It does seem like you want to maintain an index of, right. you know, for a given object reference where mm -hmm. it is. Yeah. Oh, that's easy enough to, fig to figure out. Yeah, sure, sure. Because the problem is that what if you would have it on premises uh, on your own uh, servers, uh, then mm -hmm. you would just start them up and you'd know what what uh, di what disk to use, right? right? That wouldn't be a problem. In Azure, there's so much dynamics involved there, and you don't know which which drives you're going to get and which instances you're going to get. Are, yeah. Right? You, you'll you'll find out when it starts. And the problem with that is that you have two. This is a two-step process, right? One is to download and install and, and unzip and configure all of that stuff, and then once you launch it, Neo4j then will have its own life and right. its own process, literally in its own process. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't really know anything about all that other setup stuff. It just wakes up and it's like, here I am. Am I part of a, a cluster? What, what am I doing? Where's my, where's my data? Right. This better be configured right because otherwise it's not going to work. Yeah, when someone writes out an object to me, who do I notify to make sure it's in the index? Yeah. Like, this is not a trivial problem. It's, it's yeah. a known problem, but, mm. you know, it does have to be work through. Absolutely. And so we're solving that, uh, courtesy of Microsoft Bus Business Innovation Fund, actually. Nice. Is, it's, it's, nice to, it's nice to say that because it's fun to be in there with the guys of, at Microsoft. They're very interested in this stuff. Uh, as, as Bjorn indicated, uh, we have been giving feedback on the Java tooling and and uh, the guys at the Interop team, uh, Interoperability Bridges and mm. those guys. Uh, we have Jess Sandu and Martin Sawicki at, at uh, the Interop team. And they're very interested in our feedback and that's kind of fun to be here now doing this now because yeah. this has a lot of pull at this point in time now uh were there any other programs or servers that java uses a lot of a lot of java developers may use that aren't going to run in azure and that's mm -hmm. what i'm considering here is that if uh, okay java might be supported but what about some of the tools or some of the databases or some of the, the, the those things that Java programmers love right. to use? Well, Java in its nature is, is you know, pretty much the same all over because it runs in a virtual environment, a virt virtual machine. So I don't think there are anything... I mean, there, there could be special cases where you do something on, on file systems and such, but generally I haven't, haven't seen anything like that. And we have tried to, to install Glassfish, for example, in Azure, mm. which is a pretty enterprise what's glassfish it's an ent enterprise grade advanced uh, ent uh, enterprise server it's a reference uh, application server in java okay uh, made by oracle well this is where things get hard is standing up a chunk of code that you don't necessarily own but might have and, and of course the only dependency we really called out here is file system access hmm. 
thing. But it, I've got to think there's other restrictions in a worker role. This, you know, well, it, there is there is a problem luring here that if you do a lot of file input and output mm-hmm. on a product that you don't own and you don't have the source code for, and you ha- you do have a problem in Azure since you can't trust to get those files all the time because right the da- could database apps you know or databases in general are right. are going to be a problem. Hmm. My my SQL. Um, my SQL isn't written in Java, but um, should probably could probably run in Azure. But it's but, gonna have it's gonna have to have file access. Yeah, there. and I don't know how to do it. I think you can configure my my SQL to go to a specific path, and then you can have that as blob storage. It should probably be safe then. So it's a little bit unknown. It's a little bit unknown. It, we haven't found any problem we haven't been able to solve just yet, but probably are cases. But yeah, this does feel like an edge case. This is solving a particular issue that folks have with an existing code base. We've got an app. We need to run it in Azure now. Is there a way? We haven't had to do that yet, but I guess at the in the end, you could always fall back to a VM role instead of a worker role and set it up exactly the way you want it. You still have but file it, access But once problem. you go down that path, you could have been with EC2. You know, I think totally. the, the whole distinction here, why do you want to run in a worker role? I don't want to own the operating system. No, exactly. I, I, I totally nothing. agree. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big pass believer myself, yeah. uh, absolutely, and I agree. Uh, the... Uh, the the case for choosing Windows Azure, even if you're a Java shop, would be all of that extras, right. uh, like all of the apps, uh, fabric uh, extras stuff yeah, that you can just use. Platform as a service yeah, approach, exactly. Rather, rather than the infrastructure piece, where now now you've totally. got an OS and you've got to do the installs and you've got to do the patching and yeah, it's not that it's bad, but when, then again, if you do if you choose only that path, then what's the difference between hosting it on premises? Right, nothing on premise or any other cloud vendor. I mean, I just think like the VM is the lowest common denominator. It's it's giving you the least benefit overall. Not that it is benefit, but, but you can is, get yeah. more if you could get to the worker role. It'd be interesting to find the case where, where we actually can't make it work on, on Azure uh, in, in a worker role. We haven't found that yet. Well, and the other side of this would be getting into like JSPs, like really building stuff, whole websites in Java and getting that to execute in the, on the, in the web role as well. Yeah, I actually showed that on our, during our session. So uh, it works. It works, uh, and I could to do a, a complete um, web app in uh, live during during the session in like ten minutes. So it's very doable to do. Um, but going really advanced to edge cases like like graph databases and such, mm-hmm. then you might probably find some some things that you can't really do. But we haven't seen that yet. So. You know, how do you connect to the graph database when it's running up in the worker role? Is it over oh, HTTP? Yeah, they have a REST interface. Okay, yes. So, so yes. I mean, exactly. it's the whole thing is we're playing the cloud game, so we've got to stay on port 80 uh, or 443. Right, but uh, our, our, our idea now is to, to make it an internal endpoint so that we can only communicate with it from our front end, and then our front right. end in, in turn then exposes an OData uh, service. Okay. And uh, of course, uh, we want to, we're actually working on also looking at at least the proof, proof of concept for now, together with, uh, with support from, uh, senior guy of OData, mm-hmm. uh, at Microsoft, uh, to, to get OData support for the Java product for, for Neo4j Direct. So in that case, we could actually query our OData service on the front end and just forward that query to the database and nice. just send the, the response back out, back out. That would be optimal because then we don't have to co- uh, convert the, their REST API, their, just, their JSON output into an OData output. Right. That'd be cool. 
Well, and I mean, it's maybe it's a little off topic, but what's the big deal with a graph database? Why would people want this in the first place? Uh, yeah, that that is it's, it's a fun it's a fun question because uh, it's kind of like I don't know it's kind of like when uh, uh, when you didn't know that that you that there was such a thing as olive oil, you you might have had like uh, vegetable oil or some some other kind of stuff like right. and then you you were fine with that. And that was nice, uh, and then olive oil comes comes along, right? And this is like olive oil. This is really you can do crazy stuff at at uh, runtime like if r- in real time uh with uh which goes just so ima- unimaginably fa- much faster than the relational storage right. when the problem is in the graph problem space right, right? Yeah. if if you have a relational database uh relational it, storage problem keep to a relational database sure. it's not a silver bullet but but the issue here is you're decomposing objects into relational items in a big fat transaction and that mm-hmm. takes time and then you're recomposing them on the other end when you're done True. and the graph databases just bypass that whole thing yeah. here's my object eat but the now que- give it back no but the querying is is the is the strength here right you can do querying for really crazy stuff like what stuff is nearby here that my friends have visited or my friends friends uh, know about a place and can all of those, uh, which are social and, and geographical structures, right. query, try to write that as a SQL statement. It's, 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 you're it's hairy. Get, you're going it, to get joints all over the place, and the performance is just going to die. Well, it's that whole hierarchical recursive thing that generally relational databases don't consume well. Correct. We, and so we, that problem space is a graph problem space. Right. Uh, I had, a, had that on a slide as well in our presentation. Do you have a graphy problem? Uh, so how do you know when you do? And, and can you then... Use another project or product. Are you are you brave enough? Because I mean, come on. Uh, if I have a, a SQL Azure instance, just uh, store my data in there. I yep. could use Entity Framework and be done with it in ten minutes. Uh, if I if I want to do this, I got no support. Yeah, I got to write all of it myself. But it comes down to the querying, right? It's, totally. You can always stuff the data in. That's not the hard part. It's getting yep. back out what you actually wanted and query and and structure it in a way that which makes sense when you want to query it. Yeah. Like, what's your what type of queries are you querying for? And what what do you want to know? And how do you want to calculate it? Mm-hmm. And once you got that down, which we we are, we're not there yet, but we know what we want and we know we can do it. But it's it's. Uh, like like I said, you don't have any support at all. You 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 would go file new projects. Right, like you're starting from empty. scratch. You're starting from scratch. Well, it's a chal- challenging idea, and it's just interesting to see how Azure has spread. And we we there's all of these options. It's not just for .NET anymore. No, and actually, when when I speak to my colleagues, uh, which are all Java developers, and they ask me why, sort of why Azure, hmm. um, but. Almost every client I've been working for has a mixed environment because it's that yeah. large. And if they want to move to the cloud, they want they need to support both .NET and probably PHP and Java as well. Well, that's real life, right? We're, we're not homogeneous networks. We've got a little bit of everything. So but you can say the same thing about the cloud as well. Why wouldn't you stand up your Java stuff in EC2 to communicate to Azure? You could. You could, but then you would have uh, different uh, ne- uh, physical networks, right? You would right. have latency issues and that kind of thing. If you could host it inside of the same sir, uh, uh, physical location, then it's faster. Are you sure you guys are disclosing all the bonks <laughs> that you really went through? Come on now. Uh, no, it, just, it, it didn't just go perfect. No, it, it, there was a lot of fiddling with, like I said, folder paths and, and yeah. stuff like that. And uh, But nothing that Java and I mean, the, the stuff that I've told you was, wasn't easy to... 
the stuff, stuff that I told you wasn't easy to fix, man. Yeah, it yeah, wasn't. Yeah. It, there was some hairy issues down there. Yeah, now you've got it done. It looks simple, but yeah, it's, a, it's the diagnosis that's the hard part, trying to find your way. Totally, totally. Diagnosis and, and trying. If it, in the beginning, it just didn't work. And, right. you know, why? And I've been doing IntelliTrace debugging and, and all of that to, to actually to get to the root of the problem. And, and I've refactored uh, this code now like a million times, it feels like. So now it looks smooth and simple. Yeah. Yeah, but it wasn't smooth and simple to get there, man. And you think that's going to be a, a similar problem anyone else is going to have if they're their totally, stuff. which is why Microsoft are very, very, very eager to hear feedback. I mean, all of you guys yeah. out there listening, if you have any Java experiences on Azure, Microsoft are screaming to get that information from you okay. to, to support it better. Uh, any blog posts or something we can go to look at about uh, running Java on Azure? Sure, there are a couple of blog posts on the uh, on the Neo4j blog, and I guess we're going to put some on our diversify.se blog. Can you give us a URL? That would be blog.diversify.se. Blog.diversify.se. And what was the other one that you said? It's at neo4j.org. So I guess that's kind of blog.neo4j.org. Neo with a four as a number and a j.org. N-E-O-4-J? Neo, yeah. Neo as, in, as, as literally in Neo from Matrix. Okay, yes. Neo. That's, yeah. Okay, great. Magnus, Bjorn, thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Thank you. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Hey, thank you very much. It's Carl Frank and Richard Campbell down on the floor at Norwegian Developers Conference 2011 in Oslo at the Oslo Spectrum. And we're here with Jill Clearin and Kevin Docks. Docks. Yes. Hey, guys. How are you? Oh, we're fine. Thanks. Thanks, Uh, Kevin. Yeah, we're fine. Hey, Jill. Welcome to the show. So what have you guys been working on? Didn't you do a book on Silverlight recently? Uh, Yeah, we wrote a book on Silverlight 4. Together, both of you. Yeah. On 4. Uh, on Silverlight 4 uh, called the uh, Silverlight Data and Services Cookbook. How's it selling? Selling very, very well. Actually. Very good. Yeah. So uh, I heard this technology was dead. Why would you write a book on it? <laughs> <laughs> Chill, am I going to answer that for you? Or are you? Give it to me. I, I don't know where you heard about that. I really don't know about uh, where you got that rumor. It's absolutely not that technology. It's certainly not. Yeah, and we're, we know. To, to prove that, we're actually writing a book on Silverlight 5. So we're moving forward. Uh, what sort of apps are you building? I mean, obviously, that book sounds like you're uh, how to build CRUD apps in Silverlight. Yeah, we. Uh, I think both of us are building type of, same type of applications. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're both enterprise developers, and the types of applications that we build are real business applications. Um, for me, it's both for the internet and also for company in companies internally. So, and I think for Kevin, it's almost the same. Yeah, it's more or less the same. Uh, we mm-hmm. tend to build more intranet apps instead of internet internet extranet uh, applications and we tend to build them with wcf ria services a lot yeah um which poses a few challenges which is actually what my session this uh, this morning was about how do you get from the default templates we get in ria services to um well the requirements in enterprise has do you think that the html5 javascript css uh hype craze whatever is reaching is going to reach into the enterprise as well, or do you feel relatively safe standing uh, with desktop technologies? 
Personally, I think I've always been of the idea that uh, Silverlight is a development platform for applications and HTML5 is about reach, so about the web. And personally, I really don't think how that would change now because what I'm doing today in Silverlight, I really don't see myself doing that in HTML or in JavaScript. So, I mean, why is that? Why, why don't you see yourself doing that? Because the ease of development that I have with, full, with the full power of .NET behind me, that's, uh, that's, that cannot be replaced simply by, by JavaScript, in my opinion. Well, it's um, what you see a lot. Of, don't get me wrong, I do love HTML5 and where it's going. Um, I think I wrote a blog post about that a few months ago, that I would love to be able to say I am developing enterprise apps in HTML5 now, well, in, in two years then. Um, but what you see in a lot of in a lot of applications that you are going to, especially in the enterprise, you're going to architect it very well. And if you then start looking at what you can do with JavaScript and HTML part of it in JavaScript, a lot of applications built in HTML, HTML5, end up in just a gigantic code mess without patterns, without this, without that. Yeah. And I see now that. We're getting somewhere where it can be different. You see stuff like Knockout.js, which mm-hmm. enables MVVM in JavaScript. Mm-hmm. I kind of like where it's going, but it's not there yet. Do you don't, I mean, don't get me wrong. The days of big, bloated JavaScript apps are definitely over. But mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. the modern application seems to look like you know all the services in the cloud and mm-hmm. the UI layer is very thin and yeah. you know very slick. Mm-hmm. Um, Data entry is not a problem. Reporting is not a problem. I mean, what what is not there? What is not there? Um, tooling? The, tooling? Tooling is one part. But um, another thing you see a lot is that people want native applications. That's something In I the meant. enterprise? Uh, or everywhere? Everywhere. Everywhere. People want native applications on their phones. People want native applications in the enterprise. People want native applications everywhere. And you, I mean, I'm sorry for sounding <laughs> flip, but when you're when your kids playing uh, a game on their iPhone, do they say, "I like this because it's a native application"? <laughs> they like this uh, because they just go to their uh, home screen on their iPhone and push the application button there. Um, right, so they like they it because not, it works. It's because it it, it just works. To uh, quote Steve Jobs, <laughs> mm-hmm. and. Um, Okay, but is Silverlight really a native application? If you were that concerned about native applications, wouldn't you be building a WPF? Um, I think about a year ago or a year and a half ago, I asked that same question to um, Scott Guthrie. Mm-hmm. And uh, he then answered, well, you're going to use the um, lowest common denominator, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. So if you can build it in Silverlight, use Silverlight. If you need features that aren't in Silverlight, go to WPF. Yeah, but if you have the if, if if you have the the skill set of one of those SAML technologies, you can apply your your, your knowledge. It's not everywhere. that hard to skip to the other one. It's really mm-hmm. easy to move from one to the other. Yeah. So, are you guys building out of browser typically if you're working in Silverlight four or uh, staying in the browser? Both, mm-hmm. both actually. Yeah, and, and and often I build applications that run both in the browser and that customers can also install on their machine. Right. That they can choose that they want to run it offline for in the field or something. Right, and they don't want it. Don't need to see the browser at all. No, indeed. Now, I mean, we're talking CRUD apps here. So, is there any real fancy UI you're trying to do here? Or is it still just forms and buttons? 
Well, it depends. Uh, I've done applications where the customer is really not that concerned about how it really looks, mm-hmm. but is more concerned about the fact that everything runs smoothly, fast, without posting back to the to the server side. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've done applications where the, the UI is really important as well, and then there's a team of designers that help with the actual look of the application. And, they, and do they get fancier with it, more exotic controls, the, the carousels yeah. and yeah. things like that? Indeed, yeah, hmm. indeed, we get there. And, and it's, it's actually quite easy for, for developers to step into the world of, of, of SAML development as well. For designers, I'm sorry. And I guess that's part of the challenge there is the re- designer-developer relationship. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I think you actually need, uh, well, depending on what applications you're building, uh, if you're building a consumer-type app, you need a designer-definer on your project. Mm-hmm. I am absolutely convinced of that. Uh, because we as consumers are getting used to the nice UIs and the nice ways of working. And it's good to have that. It's better productivity, better usability, stuff like that. But also in the enterprise app, people are getting used to better looking applications, better feeling applications. Um, and I think being a designer, thinking about usability, that's actually a skill of your own. Uh, I'm, I'm, I've got a developer background. I'm a, a, I really love nice UI, but don't ask me to create it. I, I can't do that. <laughs> so, so you know you know it when you see it. I know it when I <laughs> see it. And uh, and I go and ask my designer, um, can you please, please build me a nice UI? Right. Yeah, but still, <laughs> we can, we can. once we get the design, mm-hmm. it's easy to, to use it yeah. with the tools because we both the developers and the designers, we use the same files. So for us, it's, it's really easy to work with design once it's been made. But you do have to wait for the design to be made before you can get into the coding? No, so, certainly not. We, so we you, can build a, you build sort yeah. of a blank canvas initially and then add the design in later? Yeah, most of the time, yes. That, depends, in fact, yeah. yeah that that, uh, that kind of depends on uh, the application we're building. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we're, we're, we're building just simple forms, which more or less look like what you get from LightSwitch mm-hmm. uh, these days. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes we need a unique UI, which is not only how the colors look, but also where everything's placed. Right. And how you go and navigate through the application. And that's still the designer who thinks that out, thinks about that. What's the killer feature of Silverlight that's going to keep people uh, in the enterprise using Silverlight when, when HTML5 comes a knock, knock, knocking on the door? I, uh, I think it's not one killer feature. I think it's um, the reliability that your uh, application will keep on working. Um, in HTML5, you've got a bunch of new APIs, which mm-hmm. I love. Um, for example, something you will typically need in an enterprise app is local storage, right. lo- local database. Right. One huge problem I see with HTML at this moment, so I'm talking about now, not in five years, sure. is that not all browsers, again, support yep. that in the same way, and they will not do that for a long time. Yeah. You can nicely, um, gradually uh, go to, uh, what's it called, uh, the... Modernizer, I think. Modernizer will gradually go back in the previous browser. So even in IE6, uh, your app will look okay. Mm -hmm. But you can't simulate a local database with some JavaScript if your browser does not support it. On the other hand, if we're talking about an enterprise, you pretty much can mandate a browser. So you should be able to pick a browser that, uh, that has support for local storage for an internal app. Yeah, but, um, if you see the amount of of, applica- of uh, enterprises that are still on, on IE6 yeah. today, mm-hmm. 
it doesn't seem like very bright uh, on that side. I just feel like you're jumping over the same hurdle trying to get Silverlight up and running on some of those machines and their mm-hmm. in their messed up configurations as much right. as now, trying to get a brow a good quality browser in place. I mean, Silverlight can run than HTML5 can. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's uh, often easier to get an enterprise to roll out a plugin like Silverlight, which mm. can be true to, uh, via update when you via Windows Update even. Um, it's easier to get them to do that than to get them to update their browsers to a more recent one. Yeah. Because that will destroy all their other applications. Right, yeah. While um, yeah. adding a plugin will not. IE6 won't go away because people built stuff that runs only in IE6. It's and that friends absolutely. don't let friends run IE6. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At Franklin's Net right now, you can get a DVD with over 11 hours of Billy Hollis on Silverlight 4 or 14 hours of Sahil Malik on SharePoint 2010, each for only $6.95. Order online at www.franklins.net. Are you looking to change jobs? Infusion Development has offices in New York City, Toronto, London, Dubai, and Poland. Infusion has hired a whole handful of Happy.net Rocks listeners. Contact me for an introduction at carl at franklins.net. Yeah, the problem here is that Microsoft never built a compatibility mode for IE6 and later browsers. All right. So, what about what? About, I'm, I'm thinking of other features that are going to keep people in Silverlight. Um, the trusted signing, you know, code signatures that allow us to have access to the local file system. Mm-hmm. Is there any? Is there any of that in HTML5 or any plan for that? I don't know. Do you know, Richard? I don't think so. I think so far HTML5 has been pretty explicit about staying in the sandbox. Yeah. Other so, than, other than local store. Right, but if you if you have a uh, a file that you want to upload or something like that, or or, or something that you want to send in that's already ex- like a doc file or something that's already on your system, you might want to you know. Yeah, like uploading a file. Yeah, 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 kind of like that. And you, and you can definitely do that. You know, like about Facebook, and you know, you pick pictures and upload them. Like it's all there. It's yeah, it's there. It's just not a lot of there. There. It's just not a whole <laughs> lot of there. Yeah. <laughs> So, guys, uh, dealing with uh, enterprise class apps, what you, you sort of implied some of this, but what are the requirements uh, on the enterprise side in, in terms of RIA services, that sort of thing? Is there about a bunch of security issues? Um, there's security issues, but a lot of the requirements we get are about reliability. Mm-hmm. And that's what I see a lot when I, when I try to set up new architecture for a specific solution. Mm-hmm. I tend to look into RIA services. Because that offers me a lot and a lot of um, well, a lot of speed while developing. Yeah. Right. But Ria Service has been marketed as a rapid application development platform. Mm-hmm. Few templates are included in Visual Studio, but they tend not to fit in the enterprise. Interesting. Uh, because, for example, um, what you typically would want is a separate host for your services, your service host, and a separate host for your which will which will serve the Silverlight app. Just to say a very simple thing. Right. With none of the default templates, you can get that. Interesting. So, I mean, but by, you can, you can by default, make... there's a presumption that the Silverlight app and the data connection are the same domain. That's often thought right. about. Uh, th- and and, and the, the, the included uh, RIA services templates are built like that. Right. You typically get your domain services either directly in it or referenced in mm-hmm. the web hosting app, which is not the way to go. But you can, you can quite easily pull those apart. But, um, well, that, that's something a lot of people don't really look into, and that's one of the things we need to look into when uh, building these enterprises. Okay. But when you come to think of it, 
uh, often with, with other technologies like ASP.NET, the default templates are there just to get you started. Yeah. But there also you need to dive into things mm-hmm. and extract everything and then start from scratch by means of speaking. We still have a default template in ASP.NET that puts session in process. And even uh, yeah. even yeah. though we know in virtually every enterprise case, that's yeah. a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. You know? That's what I mean. So in, in many cases, you still have to do it the way you should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's in, in, interesting the idea of constructing sets of templates for this. So this is this is the correct default configuration for building this scale of an app. Mm-hmm. I think that's also part of the reason that Microsoft still doesn't have uh, an MVVM template built into Visual Studio mm-hmm. because there are many ways to do that. There are many ways to do it, and and I think Microsoft is not willing to say this is the correct way to go. Yeah, there are times when Microsoft can't pick a winner. Yeah, right? but like they, in in some cases, I think it's good that they leave it open. Yeah. I, I tend to agree that there are some, in, we've and we've done interviews with a bunch of them, a bunch of different interesting MVV yeah. frameworks that have different design philosophies. Indeed. What uh, What are you guys looking forward uh, to in Silverlight Five? Um, my personal favorite is the data binding debugging because I've spent a lot of time on those things, and um, <laughs> I I hope I will spend less time on those things. Actually, yeah, yeah, data binding debugging is a big one, and um, the extra trust. Uh, possibilities we get it will probably be a big one as well for the enterprise apps. Yeah, that is that really a big deal in enterprise? I think it might be for uh, rolling out uh, for for security reasons for getting uh, to say well I only want those people in that group to have that kind of uh, rights. I think lots of enterprises already have um, some kind of rights management system set up. They can reuse it. Yeah, that's a good point, Richard. Better. We were talking about WIF. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, claims-based mm-hmm. identity, that's, and that's, that's kind actually, of thing. That's actually more or less possible with Silverlight Four already. There's a, a training kit available uh, for WIF, mm-hmm. and I've implemented WIF with Silverlight in. Uh, yeah, I wasn't doubting that. I, I was wondering if you know that's going to be one of those things that HTML5 JavaScript route isn't going to address. Yeah, I think you've you've hit on something there that claims-based security in a web app is. I don't think it's possible right now. Where it's certainly possible in in Silverlight. So that you can actually, you know, use those secure token services to find out what privileges are and, and tune the behavior of the app. I mean, in the enterprise and in, in those kinds of apps, that's absolutely necessary. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could do it. I guess you can do it with ASP.NET. You do it page by page basis. Well, and if you can do it with ASP.NET, that means you can make a call to a service or something like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, that will give you the token, and then, well, then you're good. Mark. But in Silverlight, it's with it's with. Well, you do it once you start the app, and then you've got a bunch of claims, mm. and there you go. You can use those claims to well, address almost everything. Right. Yeah, I'm just thinking the the UI side of that, it's Silverlight would be easier than uh, in HTML5 actually evaluating claims and deciding how you're going to render a page. Oh, well, definitely, especially because you can just attach them to, uh, attach those Boolean property values to binding. Right. Yeah, indeed. To enabled, enabled properties. Interesting problem. Yes, it is. All right, guys. We talked a little about Silverlight 5. We're not allowed to talk about Silverlight 6. Because it doesn't exist. Yeah. Okay. Yet. Yeah. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> You're pretty sure there'll be another version, huh? 6 comes after 5. Indeed. Yeah. Have you seen much in the way, and I guess this is a question you probably can't answer, just where Silverlight lands in the Windows 8 stack? There's a lot of rumors about that. <laughs> <clears throat> I'd love to know, but at this point, it's it's unclear to us as well. Yeah. I think. I we think to about everyone in the world, it's unclear at this point. Well, we but hope, I'm sure it will be in there. We hope certainly that it will be in the operating system. 
Well, because we know the VB runtime's out in Windows 8. Oh. There's a lot of there's a lot of rumors about this. Um, if you read Mary Jo Foley's uh, mm-hmm. column, for example, um, she talked about Jupiter Project Jupiter Project yeah. Jupiter. All right, which is uh, let's, and let's now talk into, about that. Now we're into the well, not a lot is known about that, but that's that's well, what well, actually you can't Samuel, just leave that right no. there and go on. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know a lot of it either. Uh, there was another blog what post do we today. Know? There was another blog post today that it would be in there and it would be based on Silverline. Mm-hmm. What is it? I have never heard of it. Tell me. It's a it's another kind of XAML implementation yeah, specifically yeah. for Windows 8, yeah. according to the rumors. That's the rumors. That's yeah. in the rumor. Another Nobody kind of XAML. True. You mean like a XAML hybrid? Oh, like, like the same way that we've got XAML in the form of a special version of Silverlight for the phone. Yeah. This yeah. is something else different yeah. again, but still. Uh, so we've, we've got building. XAML for phone. We've got XAML uh, WPF. We've got XAML for Silverlight. I got gotcha. um, so that's that's actually the the, the three cla- uh, three screens one uh, technology um, thing we kept hearing about last year. Mm-hmm. So you you as a developer you learn one kind of technology, well, XAML and C sharp typically, and uh, then you can use that to build your applications for the three types of screens. That's right. a, a laptop, uh, web, um, then you've got phone, then you've got multimedia like Xbox. Well, and the big strength of XAML. Is it's built on, uh, you know, the Avalon stack, which was about utilizing GPUs in Windows, right? Mm-hmm. Which is something Windows Eight can't walk away from. I mean, that's yeah. important. Yeah. But, you, but then we've also seen in IE nine that HTML five is capable of hardware using acceleration. hardware acceleration as well. All right. Well, jeez, uh, uh, I can speculate, but I won't. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, but I've got, I've got some. I- now that I know that, I've got some ideas about what's going on. But I'm really just, I can't say anything. Yeah. This is all going to land in September, right, at the yep. Build Conference. Indeed. Indeed. Well, we'll talk about it over a scotch, my friend. I bet we will. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, if we want to learn more about the work you're doing in Silverlight, books that are up and coming, where can we find you? Uh, I think you can uh, best reach us via our blogs. Right. Our blog is uh, snowball.be. And mine is uh, blog.kevindocs.com. Awesome. Or Twitter, just add me at Kevin Docs. Me at Jill Clayton. That's the correct pronunciation. Jill Clayton. <laughs> yeah, Jill Clayton. That's Jill Clayton. <laughs> I'm in. All right, guys. Thank you very much. Okay. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. <laughs> .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklin's.com. .net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.